Well, it is truly a great joy to be with you this afternoon, to bring God's word to you. I have one quick correction to the introduction. Um, Dr. Pipe, I think, said that I started shortly after Greenville Seminary began. I actually started before Greenville Seminary began. <laughs> so Dr. Smith came to Greenville and he wanted to do a test the waters period of, of classes to see if there was enough interest in the area to uh, warrant a, a seminary starting up in Greenville. I was there. <laughs> I was part of that class. Before we get started, I, I just I have to tell you two quick little instances that happened uh, in those early days. And I just realized earlier that there's no one here that can dispute what I tell you. <laughs> I go way back. But one of my, my favorite memories is from Dr. Greg Singer, who was the church history professor in dec decade. And um, in eight years of classes, meeting once to two times a week, Dr. Singer never, never called me by my correct name. <laughs> so every class, it was something different. He called me Dietrich. He called me Derek. He called me Dexter. He, he called me Deck Red. He called me Decor. He called me Deshard. <laughs> And after graduation, I was stopping by the seminary one afternoon, and Dr. Singer was there in the office, and so I went up to him, and he was in his late 80s, and I said, Dr. Singer, I, I gotta ask you. I said, do you realize in eight years of classes, you never once called me by my correct name? He looked down for about a minute, or a second and a half, and then he looked up with a big smile and said, I know that, Dexter. <laughs> so to his dying day, he never called me by my name. Well, the second story I wanted to tell you is about Dr. Smith. Because the first full-time class that I took was Intro to Reformed Theology with Dr. Smith. And at the end of the semester, I had my first ever oral exam. And I was petrified going in. And the first question was, what is the chief end of man? And I jumped on that like, like white on rice. And I answered it according to the shorter catechism. And I was feeling so good. I was like, this is a piece of cake. The second question was where would we find the language only begotten? And I was like, oh yeah, I've heard that quite a few times. Um, uh, well, uh, uh, let me think. Um, I, I'm sorry, Dr. Smith, I, I'm drawing a blank. And he lowered his glasses and he looked over at me and he says, maybe like, John 3.16. I was like, I'm sorry, my career at Greenville Seminary is over. 
But the wonderful thing about Dr. Smith was he leaned back in his chair and he put his feet up on top of the desk and he says, that happens to me sometimes too. <laughs> so it was a wonderful time and the Lord blessed and used Greenville Seminary in my life in so many ways. It's just been a joy over the years to, to walk with so many of the students uh, through beginning pastoral ministries and continuing pastoral ministries. And so I'm very thankful for that time by the Lord's grace. I'm going to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word as we turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, reading down through chapter 34 and verse 8. This is God's word. Verse 18, chapter 33. And he said, please, show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain." So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And Moses rose early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai. And as the Lord had commanded him, he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, who is like a God, like our God, a God who is glorious in his holiness, fearful in his praises, and always doing wonders. Lord, who, like you, deserves the honor and the glory and the praise and the wisdom and the blessing and the riches and the strength that we would ascribe to you this very afternoon. To you and to you alone, O oh God, we yield our worship. 
And who is a people like your people? A people who have such righteous statutes and judgments as we have in our hands this very day. A people to whom you have revealed yourself. A people to whom you have come down to, to redeem them from their sin and their iniquity through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask our God that you will draw near to us this afternoon. That you will take these precious words which we have read and we will hear, and we ask our God that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and to love you with all our heart and mind and soul and strength, and that we would give you the glory you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we've been talking quite a bit about the glory of God. And when you think about the glory of God, what do you think about? You might be thinking right now about his infinitude. You might be thinking about his blessedness. You might be thinking about his eternality. All those things that we have been talking about. I know that, at least in my own life, for many years, when I thought about the glory of God, my mind just seemed to, by default, go to the, the thoughts of the majesty and the power of God that is displayed in his creation. And I was always very comfortable with those thoughts because... After all, is that not the way the psalmist thought about God and his glory? Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork day unto day, utters speech, night unto night, reveals knowledge. And there is no speech or language anywhere on the earth that cannot hear that testimony. But also, I want you to think for a moment, you may want to turn over there to Psalm 29 and the way the psalmist parades before us this glory of God in terms of a violent thunderstorm. It's almost uncanny the way he describes it. Remember what he says when he says, the God of glory thunders. And then he tells us in, in verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, splinters the cedars of Lebanon. We heard about that yesterday. And then he comes down a little bit farther and he says in verse 7, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. He's talking about lightning bolts. Now, brethren, maybe you know something of what the psalmist is describing when he describes the God who glories, this, this glorious God who thunders, who, who divides the lightning, and, and as Job says, commands the lightning to strike its mark. Here is the glory of God. And when you get right down to it, the fact is, 
a good old-fashioned thunderstorm can be very instructive when it comes to learning about the power of God. As a matter of fact, it was a thunderstorm, more particularly a lightning bolt, that made me a Calvinist. When I was 19 years old, I had been basically brought up in in a liberal Episcopalian church, then exposed to to, uh, Southern Baptist church, but I was as Arminian as they came. And I was struggling because I had come in contact with a Presbyterian pastor that was teaching me about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And I said, wait a minute, I have free will. And I was sitting beside a mountain lake watching the thunder clouds roll in and could hear the thunder and see the lightning. And all of a sudden, a jagged bolt of lightning shot across the lake and hit a 250-foot-tall, four-foot-round virgin pine tree and blew that tree into a billion pieces. And I'll never forget that I said, that man is a fool who thinks he can resist the power of God. God manifest his glory in this way. And notice what happens when the mighty ones addressed in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 29 see this stunning display of God's power. Look at verse 9. Then everyone in his temple responds by saying, Glory, glory to God. That's what Psalm 29 shows us. God sets before us his glory in these these magnificent displays of his power. Therefore, we can say that to think of God's glory in terms of God's power is a good starting point when we are continuing this afternoon to consider the infinite splendor of Almighty God. But here's the thing, my friends. Moses had already seen some pretty impressive displays of God's power. He had seen the ten plagues in the land of Egypt. He had seen the parting of the Red Sea. He was given the law of God on Mount Sinai amidst thunder and lightnings. He had seen those demonstrations of God's power. Moses was an eyewitness to to displays of God's power that you and I can only dream about. And yet, what do we read in 
Exodus 33:18. That same Moses says, "Please show me your glory." Moses, what have you been seeing all along? Lord, please show me your glory. Somehow, my friends, Moses knew there was more. There was more than the thunder, more than the lightning, more than the, than the displays of God's great power. And my friends, we can learn here this afternoon that the glory, the power of God, and the glory of God is not just seen in his raw strength, but it's in the way he manifests himself in this passage to Moses. Now, earlier, someone took my passage from Job 26 but I was going to say, I, I don't know for certain if Moses had his little pocket copy of the book of Job. But it certainly would seem like it. It would seem like when, when Moses would read about God stretching out the north over empty space. When he reads about God hanging the earth on nothing when he reads about God ordain, or, uh, or ordering the, the heavenly bodies by the power of his spirit. And he would hear Job say, say that these are the edges of his ways. Moses knew there was more. Whatever the case... This passage before us this afternoon presents us with a view of the Most High God that is unparalleled, at least in the Old Testament. And if you missed it, that was a teaser. But you got to wait till the end of the message to get the rest of it. Moses knew there was more. Three things that I want us to consider. Number one is an earnest prayer by Moses. Number two is an astounding answer by God. And lastly, the inescapable response by all who see the glory of God. First, an earnest prayer by Moses. Sadly, we live in a day in which many churches no longer have midweek prayer meetings. Now, I hope, given the nature of this conference, that is not true of your congregation. But let me go a little deeper. Even if you do have prayer meetings, what are those prayer meetings like? So it's not uncommon for a, a midweek prayer meeting to have some form of uh, a brief Bible study or perhaps a study of a book about some Christian doctrine. And then that usually is followed by a time of request. It 
It may be a request for people that are sick or people that need salvation or people that are going through some particular trial or those that are getting ready to travel some distance. My friends, all of those things are biblical requests. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for those things. But here's a question worth asking. Have you ever heard anyone in your prayer meeting pray, Lord, show us your glory? Have you ever heard anyone pray like the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians in chapter 3? That God would strengthen us with might in the inner man by the power of the Spirit of God. Or that God would cause Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith. That we being rooted and grounded in love would be able to comprehend and to know the love of Christ. To know the the width and length and depth and height of the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Or to pray as Paul closes that prayer out with that we might be filled with the fullness of of God. I don't know how many of you may have seen the, the little book of Alistair Begg on that prayer. And it's called Pray Big. My friends, Moses is praying big here. If you have never studied the prayers of the Bible. If you've never taken the time to go through the prayers of David and Solomon and Elijah and Jehoshaphat and Jeremiah and Daniel and Nehemiah or the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus Christ, brethren, let me encourage you. Start this afternoon. And begin to look and to read and to meditate upon some of those prayers. I believe that you will find that their prayers were substantially different from ours. They were praying big. And one of the greatest examples we have is right here in Exodus 33 and verse 18. Please, Lord, show me, show me your glory. Now let me bring it home. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Now listen closely. You children, got quite a few children in this congregation. This is not a complicated prayer. Please show me your glory. Young people, you can pray this prayer. Teenagers, I know that you're probably very busy right now with teenager stuff whatever that might be, you can pray this prayer. And my friends, it boils down to this. If you want to see 
the glory of God, you have to ask him for it. Remember what Jesus said when he says that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. James tells us you do not have because you do not ask. Ask God, brothers and sisters, young people. Ask him to show you his glory. Now, again, why is Moses asking this? I mean, it's not like Moses did not already know God in an exceptional way. Moses has already seen God as the holy God who, who in the burning bush calls him near and says, take your shoes off your feet because the ground upon which you're standing is holy ground. He's already seen him as a compassionate God, as a God who has revealed himself. I'm coming down to redeem my people out of their slavery and bondage. I'm coming down to redeem those that I love. He's already seen God as a powerful God, parting the Red Sea. I don't know how many of you may have heard the story about the little boy in elementary school and his, this, you can tell I'm dating myself. This goes back to the days where we used to start every day in public school reading the Bible and praying. And anyway, the teacher was trying to, to tone down the, the thought that the Red Sea parting was some fantastic miracle. And the little boy was listening to her and she says, well, archaeologists have now proven that it, this really wasn't the Red Sea. This was the Sea of Reeds and it was like six inches deep in water. So the, the whole parting the Red Sea wasn't that big of a miracle. And the little boy says, praise God, I've never seen such power. And she says, no, you must have misunderstood me. I, I just told you it was only six inches deep. It was, it was the sea of reeds. It wasn't that big of a thing. And he says, oh, yes, ma'am, it was. Must have been a southerner. But he said, yes, ma'am, it was. Because that means God drowned the whole Egyptian army in six inches of water. <laughs> well, I can't verify the authenticity of that, that particular story, but... The point, brethren, is this. Moses had already seen. He'd already seen the holiness of God. He'd already seen the power of God. He'd already seen the love of God. But he hadn't seen anything like what was getting ready to happen. Moses had never seen all these attributes shining with equal brilliance all wrapped up in God at one time. Moses had never seen a love that was so inextricably joined together with a power that could restore and renew a people who had broken their covenant obligations before God the way the nation of Israel had just done with the golden calf. But now he was going to see that. 
Moses had never seen the grace that could forgive and cleanse and change the souls that would humble themselves before God and confess their sin and call on God for mercy. So what was Moses praying for? I think Moses was praying that God would show him his infinite splendor. Moses was praying that God would show him his glory as much as it was possible for a mortal man to see the glory of God. I don't know about you seminary students whether you've read The Life of Robert Murray McShane by Andrew Bonar. But if you haven't, you need to get that book and read it before the end of the semester. I know you don't have much else to do, but you can focus on that. Remember how McShane prays? Lord, make me as holy as is possible for a redeemed sinner to be holy. Moses is praying, Lord. I want more. I want to see more. I want to know you more fully, more clearly. Lord, I want to see your glory. Please show me your glory. Well, then we have an astounding answer before as God responds to Moses' request. Verses 33 and, or chapter 33 and verse 19, the Lord says, okay, I will come down. I will show you my, my glory and I will cause my goodness to pass before you. But there'll be certain limitations. One of them is you cannot see my face and live. So I will hide you in the cleft of the rock until I pass by and you can see my back parts. Here, God comes down. But in verse, or chapter 34, in verses 5 and 6 in particular, we see God descending in the cloud and standing with him there and proclaiming the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty. Now, one writer describes this this series of attributes that God makes known to Moses as the Mount Everest of his revelation of himself to his people. And my friends, it would not be until the word became flesh that men on earth would ever see or know 
that which was equal to this and certainly nothing beyond it. This was a demonstration of the glory of the eternal God. And for now, God proclaims to Moses this string of ten attributes. And brothers and sisters, this, these words become the very quintessential expression of God's glory for generations of his people on earth. We find these, these very words in, or some portion of them in Numbers 14, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Nehemiah 9, Jonah 4, Nahum 1, and Joel 2. This was how God made himself known to his people, how he showed them his glory. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know what in the world I was thinking to consider that we would be able to cover all of this in one setting. But we're going to make an effort. We're only going to be able to skim the surface of these ten attributes. And we're going to couple and bind them together and look at six particulars. Number one, he says, I am the Lord, Jehovah. I am the Lord, God, Jehovah, El. And so when he speaks of himself as the one who is the, the great I am, I am sent you. Now understand, this is not the first time God revealed himself in this way. He had already revealed himself to Moses in chapter 3, saying, tell them that I am sent you. And that name, Jehovah, had been used by the people of God. They had heard that name for, for hundreds of years. But they didn't understand it fully until God came down in his redeeming grace to deliver the children of Israel out of their bondage. And then they understood this Jehovah was a God of redemption. My friends, that is a telling thought. And you and I can never understand who God is as Jehovah until we see him in the work of redemption. To put it another way, apart from Christ, you will never see the glory of God. It is God as a redeeming God who is Jehovah the Almighty. And then he adds, Jehovah El, I am the Lord God. And here he is revealing that the one who is, is the one who is a God of power. Like El Shaddai, when he appears to Abraham and he says, I am 
God Almighty, Abraham, you don't have anything to worry about, no matter how extreme my promises to you may be, because I am God Almighty. And my friends, what we see here is God in his redeeming love coming down with all the power of the Godhead behind him to redeem us and deliver us from our bondage to sin and sorrow. God, the Lord, the Lord God, this is his glory. And then let's couple together merciful and gracious. Let's go back to our opening question. When you think of the glory of God, what do you think of? More particularly, do you think of his mercy? Is that the way we think of the glory of God? Show me your glory. All right, I'm the Lord, the Lord God, and I'm merciful and gracious. This, brothers and sisters, becomes a preeminent part of God's glory. His mercy is the splendor of his being. Mercy is not just something God does. It's something that God is. And it's not just back then for Moses and the children of Israel. It's right now. You remember the new covenant promises in Hebrews 8, 10 through 12? When God says, I will write, this is the covenant that I will make with them. I will write my laws upon their hearts. And I will put my laws within their minds. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, the mother promise of the covenant. And then he says, their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. I will be merciful to their transgressions. I don't think anyone that I've read captures the luster of this attribute the way the Puritan Richard Sibbs does. And many of you may know the quote that Sibbs uses. It's it's a classic one when he says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Oh, how precious to our souls should be the mercy of God. Sibbs goes on to say, our sins are the sins of men, but the mercy of Christ is the mercy of the infinite God. This is God's splendor. I don't think there's a single day, at least not for me, maybe for you, in which our sins do not rise up before us and condemn us. Brothers and sisters, young people, when that happens, set your mind on things above. And you may ask the question, what things? And Paul tells us in Colossians 3, where Christ is. One seated at the right hand in our our behalf, pleading, interceding 
for us. Let the mercy of God in Christ fill your gaze and let that be your joy and your peace. But we read that God is not only merciful, he's gracious. That is, he is lavishing upon us every blessing, every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. It was Greenville Seminary where I learned the difference between grace and mercy. I always just kind of clump them together. Dr. Henry Cravendam is the one that taught us mercy is when we do not receive what we do deserve. And grace is when we do receive what we don't deserve. God is merciful and gracious. Thirdly, he is long-suffering. Oh, my friends, I don't know about you. I struggle with this one. God is long-suffering. Unlike us, he is slow to anger. He suffers long with the weakness, with the frailty of his creatures. He is not quick to lose patience. God waits to be gracious. God gives us every opportunity to turn from our sin and be cleansed by the blood of Christ. He is long-suffering. Just think of how passionately the, the prophets pleaded with the people of their day Isaiah in chapter 1 and verse 18 saying, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. But perhaps no one says it more passionately than the prophet Ezekiel. In chapter 33 and verse 11, when he relays the message of God, why will you die, O Israel? Why? I take no death in the pleasure of the wicked. Why will you die? Turn, turn and live. My friends, do you need to hear that this afternoon? Is there some sin? In your heart, in your life that you think is hidden from the knowledge of men, it may be, but it is not hidden from God. But God is saying, why? Why will you continue in this? Turn, turn, and live. God wants us to live. He is long-suffering. He is abundant in goodness and truth. Brethren, when we think of God in these terms, we have to understand that all that we've talked about, his goodness, his love, his long-suffering, his grace, has absolutely no limits. You can't measure it. It's unfathomable. I am abundant in goodness and truth. When God acts, he acts the way Paul praises him in, in Ephesians 3 and verse 20, where he says, Now unto him who is able to do 
exceedingly, abundantly, above all you can ask or think. My friends, Paul just just piles superlative upon top of superlative here. He's saying it's not just God can do more than you can think. It's more than you can ask or think. And it's not just that. It's abundantly above what you can ask or think. It's exceedingly abundantly above what you could ask or think. That's how abundant God is in his goodness, in his mercy. But we must not represent or misrepresent that goodness or love because God's goodness is always guided by his truth. And the truth is we're all sinners and we all need a redeemer. And we all need to confess our sins. We need to believe on Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. God has provided a remedy. But this is not carte blanche. Do what you want and I'll still love you. It's always guided by his truth that there is one way to the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Abundant in goodness and truth. Number five, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Here is a remedy for every expression of human disobedience. Every word, every thought, every deed, sins of commission, and sins of omission are all answered here. God has provided a remedy and that he promises to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And you know from Micah seven eighteen what he does with those sins. He says, I will cast your sins into the depths of the sea. You know what that means? It means when God forgives, you'll never hear about it again. I love to fish. I love to go out in a boat. I love to be out on the ocean. And on one or two occasions, I've dropped something over the rail. And you know what? It wasn't coming back. And you could look all day long and you won't find them. That's what God does with our sins and our iniquity. That's the God, the glory of God who forgives. And he doesn't do this for a few of his choice servants, my friends. He does this for the vilest offender, as the gospel hymn says. He does it for thousands, and not just thousands, but for a thousand generations. He is abundant and merciful and gracious. And then number six, by no means clearing the guilty. My friends, listen closely. 
because we cannot view God's glory rightly if we do not view him as holy and just. As one writer put it, if he were not just, he could not be good. It is that holiness and justice, by definition, he must punish sin. But that means, by definition, apart from Christ, my friends, there is no hope whatsoever. He made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. He took our place that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's a wonderful picture that C.S. Lewis calls the great exchange. Our sin placed upon Christ and he bears the penalty and his righteousness placed upon us so that we receive the benefit. Ladies and gentlemen, God's justice upon the wicked as well as his fatherly discipline upon his children is as much a part of his glory as is his love and mercy. And that's why I believe the writer of Hebrews writes as he does in chapter 12 and verse 5 and 6 when he says, have you forgotten? Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. He does it. For your good, he does it because he loves you and because it brings forth spiritual fruit. My friends, I realize we've only touched the hem of the garment here. But I do pray that God will take this this string of pearls, this, this diamond necklace of ten attributes, And that he will use it to warm our hearts to his beauty, to his glory, to his majesty. And let me encourage you, perhaps you can take some time before this conference ends and while it's still on your mind to slip off into the corner and read through these attributes once again and meditate on what God has revealed of himself to us in this passage. This is his glory. Lord, show me your glory. Well, lastly, the inescapable response of all who see the glory of God. What happens when you see the glory of God? Well, what happens in Exodus 34, particularly as Moses sees and hears all of these attributes displayed before him. Well, we read in verse 8, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. My friends, worship is always the result of seeing God's glory. Moses wasn't the only one. Remember what Job did when God finally speaks to him? He says, oh... You know, I'd, I'd, I'd heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and I abhor myself in dust and ashes. He bowed low before God. He said, I'll put my hand over my mouth because I've said things I should not have said. What happens when Isaiah sees Christ seated on the throne? 
Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What happens when John, the apostle on the Isle of of Patmos, sees the resurrected Christ in his glory, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was, who is, and who is to come? He falls at his feet like a dead man until Christ raises him up. Now, brothers, young people, ladies and gentlemen, if what you know about God does not lead you to worship, does not lead you to love and adore him, you have not yet seen the glory of God. Because everyone who sees that glory responds in the same way. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, all that God has done for us in Christ, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. That you do not be conformed to this world but be transformed, metamorphosed into the very image of the Son of God. Now there's one more thing that I want to show you. This Mount Everest of God's revelation of himself provides us with a stupendous view of the glory of God. It was certainly a blessing to Moses then. It should be a blessing to us now. But brethren, there is a sense in which we've been splashing around in the shallow end of the pool. And I want us to take a quick dip in the deep end. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians and chapter 3. 2 Corinthians and chapter 3, and beginning in verse 7, it's very striking. Paul quotes what happened in Exodus 34. This glory that God revealed of himself to Moses. He makes the point that this this manifestation of God was glorious. So glorious that Moses' face shone so brightly he had to cover himself with a veil just for people to look at him. That was glorious. But look at what he says in verse 10. When he says, for even that What was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. That glory that God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, Paul says it's as if it had no glory, none. Compared to the glory 
of God that we see revealed in Jesus Christ in the new covenant. That glorious display can't even compare with what has been revealed through Christ in the new covenant. Let me close with this. My friends, when you see the glory of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ, you are seeing the brightness of the Father's glory. You are seeing the exact image of the Father. You are seeing, brothers and sisters, the infinite splendor of Almighty God in Christ. And when that happens, you will not simply worship him and love him and give yourselves as living sacrifices to his service. You, your whole being, will be changed from one degree of glory to the other until you become like Jesus Christ. It's exactly what he tells us in verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the mirror of the word of God, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. My friends, I pray that what the mighty ones said in Psalm 29, we can say here this afternoon where everyone in the temple says glory. Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, we are but frail creatures, sinful, frail creatures of dust. Have mercy upon us, O God, but fill us with the joy of redeeming grace and show us, show us right now the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name and for his sake.